Hello, evolutionaries, and welcome to the For the Evolution of Business podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Brady, and I'm here today with James Smith. James earned a bachelor's degree in development and child psychology from SUNY Brockport before joining the YMCA, first as an intern, then as a program director, center director, executive director, and urban district executive, before taking on his current role as director of development and community engagement at the YMCA of Greater Rochester. He is also a 2015 honoree of the Rochester Business Journal's 40 Under 40, recognizing his professional accomplishments as well as, as his leadership in the community. Although he's constantly on the go, he's always makes time for family and as a number one priority. His wife and three children can often be seen at YMCA events, not only exuberantly cheering on James and his staff, but often participating and volunteering by his side. Thanks so much for joining us today, James. My pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for having me, man. So I, you know, I, I love, I, I have a background in psychology as well, um, but I, I love just that that kind of was part of the way that you got into this field. But tell me where that kind of interest developed. Was, was that degree with the intent of doing something with youth or how did you develop that interest in psychology? Yeah, so great question, Andrew. First, let me go back and say thank you so much for having me. And that was an outstanding introduction, my friend. Listen, <laughs> I mean, I feel, whoa, I'm not sure if James Smith, the right James Smith is in here. Hey, but I, I did my research on you. I appreciate that, brother. And yeah, to your, to your question, I think my background, the passion for psychology and understanding human behavior came from my development as a young person in Rochester. So I was born and raised here, and I grew up on the west side of, of Rochester, Brown Street, West Main Street. Um, Genesee Street was kind of the area that I, I started. St. Mary's Hospital at the time, that was my hospital where I went and, you know, had some, had some uh, bruises and some scratches and some, some stitches sometimes, uh, was where I kind of resided. And in that space, there were some challenges. You know, my mother was an awesome woman, but she was a single parent. My father, my biological father, was a Rolling Stone. So people hear that song, Papa, was a Rolling Stone. Unfortunately, um, you know, I have dozens of brothers and sisters that I still haven't connected with because of that dynamic. And with that, my mom was really working hard to figure out a way to take care of myself and, at the time, my grandfather, who was elderly and he was ill. And so I remember watching her struggle as a young man, so the ages between um, specifically around uh, 9, 10, 11, 12, and those four years of watching her struggle to pay the bills, to keep him well, and to also take care of me. And in that community at the time, you know, the challenges of having positive male role models, it was, it was a real thing. There were role models. There were, there were individuals that were dynamic and charismatic and would talk to you about what they could do to help assist you in some of the issues. You know, for example, you know, you had some clothes on that may not be um, the most, you know, in style. And so, you know, we called our shoes Bobos back then. If you didn't have the kicks that were right, the Nikes or the, or, you know, or the Reeboks at the time, then you were wearing Bobos. <laughs> and so they would talk to you and say, you know, Jay, you know, uh, we can help you out with those shoes, brother. You know, can help you out with, you know, your mom with some of those bills, especially not, I know your granddad is not doing well. And I think that with having lack of role models, a lack of a positive role model in my life, I started looking at that as an opportunity because what I was seeing as, at a young age is my grandfather, who was my positive role model, male role model, wasn't available to do those things. And I saw my mother struggling financially. I often didn't see her because she would work two jobs. She was working a regular job and then she was bartending. And so I said, well, at that age, I need to be a man. And so at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, that's mm -hmm. not necessarily where you... You're not ready to be a, uh, a man, quote unquote, or an adult to start taking care of things in that fashion. But you start to make those decisions based on what you're seeing. And so I started contemplating that and I started looking at that, the, you know, the bag, the bag boy, you know, drop, taking a bag and dropping a bag and taking a, a, you know, an envelope and bringing that envelope back and mm -hmm. getting a cut. I started thinking about those things. Um, I fought it for a very long time. 
And so, you know, a funny story I tell people often uh, is the my bus driver, who I still can't remember her name. I she, read about you that. You read this, right? Yeah. Amazing woman, bro. So, like, she would literally let me get off the bus first. She knew I sat in the back, and she knew that the young people, that the individuals that I was running from or trying to stay away from were like, hey, you know, James, you're going to do this. And I'm like, ah, oh, you know, yeah. And I'm still fighting it because I know, I know it's not what I want to do, but I see it as a potential. And she used to allow me to get off that bus first. She'd call me to the front, tell them to sit down. Like, y'all need to sit down. Like, don't move. Baby, come here. Come on now, honey. And she was so sweet. Had a southern style um, tone to her voice. Very loving. And she'd say, baby, you ready? I'm like, yes, ma'am. Okay, I'm opening this door. I need to haul that backside. You need to get home. I won't see you out here. Like, she would give me that kind of direction and literally let me off that bus. And I would, I would, I mean, like a sprinter. And I became an athlete. You know this. I became an athlete, I think, because of a lot of the running I used to do from that. And I'd get home and I'd stay there until it was time. And we had some friends in the neighborhood. I had some brothers, so to speak, um, from other mothers that we all felt very similarly about uh, our struggle. And when my mother met a man at a random, uh, not a random, but it was a blind date from a mutual friend. She brought him home one night and he met me and he sat down with me for a while and he talked to me. And during that conversation, I found out later from him that he realized he saw something in me. He saw a spark. He saw a, a passion for life and he saw an innate intelligence and a compassion for others. But he also heard me talk a little bit about the street. And I was, you know, using certain language and talking about, you know, um, th- he's like, I'm going to help my mom's out. And he, know, he knew at the time when he met me, I was 11, um, almost 12 in that range. He knew I wasn't, how am I helping my mother? But he also came from Rochester, so he knew what I was thinking. And he invested in me. Like, he literally started investing time with me. He'd come over to see my mom, but actually he came over to see me. Wow. Um, they actually didn't connect as well as I thought from my view Later on, I found out it kind of took some time for that slow burn of a connection, that love. (laughs) But he started coming around to see me and he did this wild thing. He just a random act of kindness. He invested in my mother and I, even though they weren't fully dating yet. And he helped us move out of the home that we were staying and put me in a different community to focus on my education. He knew I was running every day. He knew I was contemplating joining and starting to do some things um, that may have may lead to um, a very short life or it may lead to uh, retirement on the street as early. Mm-hmm. Right. So and sometimes you, you get into that life, though, it brings you short term gain to help your family. It doesn't give you a long term gain to plan for retirement and to think about grand grandkids, all those things. You just like in the moment, I need to get these resources to help my family. He saw that. He saw the potential in me, and he said, okay. And so he moved us, and he invested and helped us with the rent, and they weren't even together yet. They weren't even together together. They, he just invested in me. That kind of uh, love for someone you don't know but you have a connection with so quickly. He took that risk with me and my mom, and it allowed me to focus on my academics, focus on myself. And during that time, the brothers I was still, the brothers I came up with, they didn't leave the neighborhood. They stayed in that space. And so what happened, very similar situation for all of my other brothers, in a sense, where we had single parent, strong women, all of them strong women, but we're missing that positive male role model. And so when I got out into my new community in Greece, New York, and I was just focused on academics, playing sports, basketball, running track, you name it, they're still trying to survive and still dealing with the same things. And when I was about 15, 16, I realized I had lost one. He took his own life. And the other two brothers 
One is a, is a serving a lifetime sentence. And another brother, I don't know where he is. I still can't find him. And I realized around that time that I was given a blessing. I was given something that I didn't ask for. It was just given to me. It was an absolute gift. There's no other way to look at that. And the only way you can take a gift like that, and I didn't have the language yet at that age, was you got to do something for others. And so at that time, I started falling in love with, like, other kids. Like, I want to help kids. I was young, and someone helped me. And so I started helping kids in the neighborhood where I was at. I'm like, I was like, it's natural, man. I teach them how to play ball, teach them how to catch, teach them how to swim. Like, you name it. Whatever it was, I wanted to teach them. And I started really, like, I love this. I love this. And as I graduated from high school, I went to SUNY Brockport. And so, for, well, you know, first of my family to do that, right? Mm-hmm. It was an awesome thing. So we break in generation. Thank you so much. Break in some, you know, some generational challenges for our, for our family to set a new precedent for my kids. Now I have you know, my, my son, 18, my two daughters, my 16-year-old and my 13-year-old, my wife, Kylie. She's done an amazing job. God bless her. I'm so glad she chose me. Mm-hmm. Oh. But, we, you know, we set in a new bar. But in that time at Brockport, I realized, you know, social work and psychology were the two areas that I really wanted to focus on, how to get resources to those who may not have them and not, may not know how to get them, and then also understanding behavior because the choices some of the brothers that I grew up with made, it wasn't because they were bad people. It wasn't because uh, they didn't have talent, that they weren't highly intelligent, but they were in limited spaces with limited resources and support. And so I wanted to take my opportunity with my education and bring that back and then pay it forward. And so I took that and I found a non-for-profit called Lewis Street Incorporated as an intern from SUNY Brockport, right here on the east side of town. Now, knowing uh, back when back in the day, west side, east side, eh, you know, not so much, Andrew. But I knew the neighborhood in the sense because I've been over here a couple times and we leave quickly. But I knew it was very similar to the one I grew up in, dealing with poverty, you know, uh, institutional institutional poverty, structural racism, some of those things, just systems in place, people and kids and families dealing with the same challenges, trying to get up every day and figure out how to take care of their family. That found the base of the pyramid, right? And so I fell in love with that community because I saw myself. I saw young people, young ladies and young men that looked just like me, sounded like me. I saw the spark in them. I saw the parents and the aunties and the grandparents and the uncles trying to figure it out. And I realized we need more of us. I need more of my now adopted father, the man that eventually fell fully in love with my mom too, <laughs> and she fell in love with him, and now they're married and retired in Florida together. We need more individuals like that to invest in others and not have an agenda outside of this is the right thing to do, and it will lead to opening up more doors. I'm sitting here with you right now talking about my journey and then eventually the why and what we're doing here as a whole in the community because of that man taking a risk on me because he saw something. That's uh, it's not only a moral obligation of my, of, 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 for me, but for others. How do we be more conscious in our efforts? Not to judge, not to snap to judgment, but to say, okay, I see someone struggling. How do I provide support to allow them to go from where they are to where they, where they can be? Right. And so I, that's where I kind of found that niche and I loved it. And I started working with families and I started having real conversation with those kids. And like they used to call me Mr. James. And they're like, Mr. James, you don't understand us. You don't know where we come from, bro. <laughs> you go to college. You don't understand. And I said, hold on a second. Let me tell you my story. And they like, really? And so it gave me a level of authenticity with the kids and the families. But also I expected I was like an accountability partner for, for my, my, my preteens. That was my mm-hmm. jam. Like preteens was my group because that was where I got saved. Right. And so that was my first group. And from there, the sky, it just took off. 
And literally, my, my wide journey began as Louis Street Incorporated ran into some financial challenges, became community place of Greater Rochester, which is now here, still here today, which is awesome. And during that transition, you know, the, the new facility on 53 Louis Street was being re, reinvested in and redeveloped. But unfortunately, financially, some of the things uh, they needed to do, they could not do. And so they were going to have to change the way they operate the program. And at the time, I'm working for an agency that was serving uh, hundreds of families in one of the most impoverished communities trying to build pathways to success. And the United Way and the YMCA and the board for Community Place of Greater Rochester and the board for the YMCA came together and said, well, let's, listen, we can you know, run and operate this facility and we can provide support for the families. We do youth development, right? The YMCA, that's one of their pillars. And so literally, brother, we all got let go officially in one room together. Here's our slip. You know, thank you for your service. And then we got hired by the YMCA wow. all as a staff team. And then that's where we talk about drinking the Kool-Aid, like at the Y. That's where I knew the YMCA, because that was really my first introduction into the Y, was a, an organization about helping others and providing opportunities. They were change agents. They saw our CEO, and still to this day, George Rommel, he was the guy who came in. And he was, I met him the first time. He's different, you know, he was a big 6'2", just a big personality and a big physical, big physical person. And I said, this man gets it. He's an ally. He understands. And he wants to be a part of a solution. And so I, I was like, whatever I can learn from this experience with the why, I want to. Because my philosophy and their philosophy align. And so from there, they allowed me, as you read in my intro, they allowed me the opportunity to grow and develop and grow and develop other staff. They saw my passion for the kids and families I was serving. They gave me an opportunity to be promoted and say, I want you to do, it, do that with your team. I want that to permeate, through, permeate throughout our, our YMCA, Lewis Street YMCA. And so I was like, yes, I would be honored to take on that challenge. And from there, just it continued to grow. And it was all about partnerships, too, because I felt like you got to bring people together to build resilience, to help families reach their full potential. It's not that it's not there. We have to unlock it. We have to be a part of them unlocking their own potential because it's already there. Absolutely. Talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. Thank you. Thank you. So, so you know, fast forward almost 19 years with the YMCA, I've, I've done all these levels of leadership, and all the while my vision and my passion has been that about how we build resilience to lift up communities and how we connect communities, right? It's got to be a partnership, even within our own YMCA, working with our suburban operations. And we're going to talk about that today as well. And finding ways we, we can have common ground. Because we are, you know, our community is still a little bit, it, well, it's very much segregated because of mobility, right? Absolutely. And so we have an opportunity at the YMCA to connect. So let's get into that a little bit because obviously, you know, you had a passion for this and you were already, you know, paying it forward, all, all the opportunities that you had. Uh, but then this this vision and this mission of the of the YMCA really drew you in. And, and you know, I think most people, uh, unfortunately, only know of it as the as the gym or you know they they know of the of the song that it's a it's fun to stay at the ymca right, right. But, but there's so much more to it than uh, than just fun to stay uh and and to, and to get a workout so what was it about the this mission that that really drew you in and, and made it clear to you that this was a place that you could both have a great impact and have a great career yeah so the the last two words of our mission statement is the they are the most profound words for all when you think about that, Andrew, and you think about what that means, 
it's the charge of our organization, the charge of the why, and that's how I was, I was so attracted to it, and I wanted to grow and learn more at every level so I can do more and be a part of this for all. They just continue to show me, well, if we're not doing something well, how do we do it better? How do we serve kids and families, teens and seniors, from the urban core to Pittsburgh? It's for all. How do we grow to serve individuals with diverse abilities? Not disabilities. This is the mindset of the YMCA, right? It's asset-based, man. It's so powerful. Diverse abilities. How they may come through the Y or come to the Y. How do we start to move that way or move our facilities in a way where we can start to serve that for all? Our passport membership, just for an example, um, that, we that we will financially assist, being a, a charity, knowing that regardless of your ability to pay, Andrew, I'm going to find a way, and directly in my current role, I'm going to find a way to, find, to connect with a friend who has the potential to provide resources to help scholarship those who need the support because we are for all. If your mission statement says those two words at the very end, that has to be your charge. And so from every operation, 17 plus operations across the region, even in Corning, our overnight camps in Pinyin and in Adirondacks, for all. So looking through that lens is really what attracted to me, attracted me to the YMCA, but also why I feel it's so relevant for us to talk about what we're doing for the community, but also what we can still do, because we still have so much work to do. Yes, everyone knows us for our, our facilities for in terms of health and wellness, absolutely. But they don't know that we're the leading, some people don't know that we're the leading a program or a facility or a non-for-profit for child care, youth development, right? We have 3,000 kids in programs all across the county from urban to suburban regions. So our curriculum, our, our nine core components focus on lifting up children and to give them the resources to be successful, right? The importance of supporting those families that need a place to trust and then um, holding us accountable. We know we need to grow, having those conversations, looking at ways across our spectrum. And really another piece about the why that I love, and uh, we don't talk about it enough, is our setup. We have what I call a metropolitan YMCA setup. So our suburban YMCAs throughout the region uh, are maybe doing operationally doing very well. So there is a revenue surplus that is intentionally put back into our urban core programs. Because we think about economic disparities. We know that median income for Market View Heights, as compared to Pittsburgh, is astronomically different. So what do we do as a YMCA? Well, we take the surplus, operational surplus dollars, and we reinvest those into our urban core operations. And so our five operations currently in the city, Carlson, Maplewood, Monroe, Southwest, and Lewis Street, those YMCAs are lifted up by those operational dollars to ensure that there's equity and access. And we know as an organization that we can't stop there. And in my role, I'm looking for opportunities to expand and enhance our resources and our ability to support in the urban core. But because we have this, it allows us to support these whys, our whys in the city at a high level. So I don't want, same thing. So you come to a Carlson, you go to, you go to Shotland, right? You come to Shotland next week. It's going to yeah. be very exciting, brother. So you go to Shotland, you want to meet a personal trainer and talk about your, your wellness journey, right? You want to come to Carlson, talk to a personal trainer about your wellness journey. Absolutely. That's why we have a Metropolitan YMCA set up to allow those dollars to be infused in to have staff, program, and, and facilities for those things. So those are some of the things that attract me to the Y. And it also talks about the breadth and depth of the YMCA. 
We also have a division in the Y right now called the Community Division. It's a program specifically uh, set up to be in partner with our school district, having Y programs embedded in nearly 10 schools throughout the city to provide our enrichment enhancement to build off what's happening in the classroom. That's a whole nother part of what we do as an organization, pre and post assessments to see how our kids are doing from a social emotional standpoint. Because we realize social emotional wellness is the key to allowing kids of all ages, youth of all ages, to unlock their full potential. That's a whole nother wing, our aquatics program. We swim, yes, we talk about swimming, but we focus on uh, we don't talk about our, sa our safety around water programs at all of our camps, ensuring that our, that our youth are getting f lessons at camp around how to be safe in the water and then how to learn how to be safe in water. One of the top three reasons that students, African-American, Latino, students, uh, youth of black and brown, right, black and brown youth like myself, one of the top three reasons we, that they pass is around drowning, being mm -hmm. safe around water. So we talk about for all, it's it's great that we have great swim programs that may be uh, accessible to our more affluent community, more, our more stable community, but those programs have to be the same across the board, and that's what, we, that's what we try to do. Yeah, when we're talking about kind of bridging those gaps, I think that's one of the biggest challenges for Rochester. Certainly divides across, across racial lines, but, but by, by the nature of things, that often ends up being city to suburb lines as well. Right. Uh, and so in addition to you know, having some of those suburban uh, YMCAs able to, to support some of those in the city, I know that you've been really active in, in other partnerships. I, I know that in some of your, your past experience, I was reading about different partnerships you'd have with, with Nazareth or with uh, McQuaid, where you'd try to bring more, yes. more students together as yes. well, because I think that that's a big, a big piece of it, is unless we see our collective kind of shared fate as Rochester, um, that you, you do need inclusive prosperity for all, uh, for it to be a sustainable prosperity for all. Yes. And so, so tell us a little bit about some of those ways that you kind of start to bridge some of those gaps with some of those, some of those community partnerships. Yeah, so uh, one of the things I love about, so we talked a little bit about in broad strokes about partnerships and community organizations and con connecting with others. Being really intentional, Andrew, around those components. So exa for example, the Nazareth relationship we've had for probably almost as long as the Lewis Street location has been a YMCA, so almost 20 years, I would say. And that was a specific example of uh, working with their Partner for Learning program at NAS, having their young people, have their students come out to our locations uh, Monday through Friday in the afternoon. Uh, initially, the program is about tutoring, right? So helping with homework assistance and other support, but evolving from there. Because what we were trying to establish is one, a population of kids that can come into a community and learn more about that community and the richness of that community. Because we talked about upperly mobile, you can choose your community. If you don't have those resources, you can't. And so some, right now, self-selected segregation kind of happens in Rochester in the region, right? We have, we have you know, 97, 90 plus percent of one population in the suburbs and, and 97, 90, 90, uh, 90 plus percent of a different population in the city. So NAT, the NAS program was a way of bringing students, bringing young people together with our youth to build bridges, to your, to your point. So tutoring, support, mentorship, but also learning more about the uniqueness of other cultures and other communities to build empathy and understanding, right? Because you can't do that unless you have a connection. It's hard to do that through social media. It's hard to do that through devices because it's not tangible. It's not real. It's not authentic. We're not together, you and I sitting together, having a conversation and learning about each other. 
But that program allowed for that to happen. And with that program, the partners were outstanding of helping us get our youth to campus. So think about this, right? So from where we are, it takes about 15 to 17 minutes to get to NAS, right? For some of our kids that we're serving in the urban core, that is a whole other country. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm leaving, I'm leaving Rochester as a, completely. I'm not even in the same you know, um, county anymore. Like I'm, I'm across the sea. And so we, we wanted to be able to show realistically that's not the case, that this is one of many great institutions of higher learning in your community, not too far away, that you can access. So like I went to college because I was given an opportunity. Right? I was given an opportunity to move into a different environment to, be, to focus on my academics. Well, this is what the Y is trying to do with partnerships like NAS and others. You don't have to leave your community to have that environment change. You bring people to that community to build a new type of environment that's supportive of your, your reaching your full potential and your dreams. So bringing people in, one, allows them to experience a new world and see the richness of it. And the assumptions and the prejudice can start to dissipate, right? Because now you're seeing it. And also for the youth that are in the communities, you see there's all types of possibilities. You can you continue to add to the menu of things you can choose from because now you've seen it and it's real. So that's an example of that partnership. And, that, and that's kind of um, a microcosm of what we're trying to accomplish as a YMCA. A lot of things that we do within our YMCAs with our membership components is trying to get people to connect you know, if you have a passport membership, pay for financially assisted, scholarship, however we want to define it, you can access any YMCA. So my goal is to get people that are going to Carlson, are going to Monroe, going to Southwest, to go to Shotland. It's their why too. Because when we do that, when we come together, there's an opportunity for organic dialogue and connection as well. You can be intentional about, about providing the space for those to come together and then allow for organic conversation. So it's kind of part and parcel of both pieces. And that's really a focus of what we're trying to do with the Y, and it kind of shifts into our diversity and inclusion initiatives at the Y, which is focused on how we serve our members and our community, how we reflect, that means how we uh, um, attract talent and train talent and also create a culture and environment where people want to be a part of it. Right, and so that's on. It's incumbent upon us to do those things, so we can serve our community both internally and externally, building those bridges. We can't. So I, I love this line: diversity is creating a space. Inclusion is making sure people want to actually be in the space. Mm-hmm. Right, and so that's what we're working on now. It's always work. It it, it doesn't just stop. Right, it's, it's never like oh great we've made it. No, it's never. It's never. A, it's always a work in progress, and our commitment to the work is where the partnerships for me, where the Y's allowed me to be a part of that, is working with all of our operations. We have leaders at every single location that are committed to the work. And now our job as, or, as an organization is to have that permeate up and down and out, right? So up to our, our senior team, which is all in, um, down to our frontline staff that are brand new coming in, hey, what are we trying to do? We gotta do a better job. You know, op- we have an opportunity to increase that, but also out into our communities. And how do we partner with others like NAS, um, like United Way, like ESL, like other agencies and organizations and foundations that are like-minded that want to see that work? And right now, what's exciting, there's so many things going on at the Y. Andrew, is ex- are exciting. Shotland, our metropolitan setup to help support our urban core, all those things. But really, what's, what's exciting uh, on top of all that is right now, we're being intentional about partnerships. And since going out and talking to um, everybody that wants to be a part of this work, right? equity and access. How do we do that? Because we want to grow. That's the key. We want to continue to grow. 
I want to, you know, I always kid people when I sit down and talk about this work uh, is I want to sit back on my porch. You're young. So I want to I, I, I want to make it to at least when I'm sitting on my por- a porch with an, in a rocking chair. Maybe I'm retired, I hope, and I'm watching grandkids. Maybe I'll be blessed to have great grandkids. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and we're talking about how Rochester came together as a community. The greater Rochester region came together and we solved systemic poverty. Right. Like, I, that is my dream. And how do you get to that dream? Well, go back to our mission, For All. And within that, how do we partner with other organizations and foundations and individuals to make that happen? And creating spaces for courageous conversation is critical. And that's a big part of our DNI work. And that's kind of how we focus on collaborations because that's how we move things forward. And sometimes it won't be, uh, I, as I say, for lack of a better term, pretty. But we have to have those conversations. And the YMCA is committed to that. And we know we have room, like I said earlier, we have room to grow. And, and that's why we're here. Yeah, you know, I think that the, the diversity and inclusion conversation um, is really a part of the DNA of conscious capitalism. Because I think that, as, as you're saying, you know, that vision that you have for Rochester, and I share it, uh, I think that businesses have to not only be, uh, you know, be a part of it, but they have to they have to be 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 leading, uh, you know, a, a big part of that change in terms of creating more inclusive, you know, cultures and and the ways that they're interacting with the community. And so I love it because I, I think that whether it's a nonprofit organization or a for profit or, or the government, you know, I think every time people get together to to work together, there's a culture that develops. If you define culture as kind of the unspoken norms and agreements and behaviors that we have yes. for each other. So yes. are there specific kind of best practices? Because I think it again, it, it's a human nature thing. It doesn't matter the industry or the sector, um, are there best practices in terms of kind of diversity inclusion, whether the ways that, that you hire or the ways that you develop leaders or different things that you are doing? Because I know that at the YMCA, you are really leading by example in terms of the way that you're creating an inclusive culture. Yeah. The, so one of the things that we've done and as we it's interesting because we're wrapping up a strategic plan. So the 2020 is the end of our, our previous plan um, as an organization. And one of the things we were really intentional about was making sure that diversity, inclusion, and equity work was at the center of our, our, our boxes. We had like 12 boxes that we have to focus on as an organization. But we were, I, I love the fact we were purposeful about making sure that that was the center. So everything was connected to it, right? It's, it's a, if it's a, it's a mindset shift, and to your point, unspoken culture, right? Well, this is the norms, unspoken norms, right? All right, everything's connected to this. What are we doing to support this because everything permeates out from the center, right? And so now we're moving into our next five year and we're building that as we speak. Like that's, it's really exciting. We're doing that right now. And one of the things we're doing is we have a diversity and inclusion committee that's made up of staff and community leaders. So this is critical, I think. And you talk about for-profit, not-for-profit, right? Uh, Having those type of groups come together because not, you know, volunteers from the community are, they're helping you see with fresh eyes, but also from the outside. This is what we see and feel. James, we, we, we don't notice this. We don't see this. And so they can help hold you accountable, but also help chart the course and build our charter work to move forward. And so that's really one of the things that's been the most exciting about the last five and also building uh, for the next five is continue to, ex- to expand that committee of staff and volunteers across the community to look at our hiring practices, to look at our committee structure when we hire, right? Because what's great about a committee when you, when you interview individuals, you have diverse thoughts, different people at that table, and all different spectrums of, the, of diversity lenses at the table and getting feedback. What are we missing? What questions haven't we asked? 
so we can truly start to evaluate our you know, new talent coming in to be really intentional about that process. If it's just you and I talking and we connect, and we do. I, Andrew, you know I love you, brother. <laughs> we, we have this great energy that we share. And so, I mean, if someone else comes in with a different energy, I have an implicit bias. I may have a similarity bias. Uh, the new phrase that I learned, actually, I, I love that, that, that slant today on you because you and I, we're very similar. But the individual that came in after that interviewed may have the same content expertise, if not more, but I'm, I'm connecting with you. With our committee structure, our interview structure, trying to have multiple you know, perspectives at the table, it's not just me saying, I love Andrew. Well, we didn't ask Andrew this, and we asked, we asked you know, interview, um, interviewee B this. Oh, we should circle back to Andrew, because we didn't. I need to be more aware of my bias. So that's kind of help, helping to hold us accountable. It's very important to us to ensure that that process is in place. Another part of what we're trying to focus on also, so from the hiring piece, we committed last year, almost two years now, um, uh, association recruiter, with in, in having him be a part of our committee, it's, and purposefully because we wanted to start looking at how are we reflecting our communities. You know, if you're working in the, um, the Market View Heights area, if you're working in the Maplewood area, you know, there's an opportunity for us to really get into the community and reach out and start to hire from that community. But we have to be willing to go out, and that's one of our things we, we focus on is going out, to meet and connect with community leaders that can potentially join our team, not only to be a gateway to others in the, in the community that we want to serve, because that's really what it is. At the end of the day, we want to serve, but you have to be intentional about it. It just can't be diversity. It has to be inclusion. So what's the environment at the, at the house, so to speak? Do you feel welcome? Great. I saw a flyer that was in my native language, but you don't speak it, so I can't even talk to you right now. So do you have staff in place? And then how do you cultivate those recruits that you bring in? How do you grow them? I think that's what's exciting about the next five years is because we recognize we have an opportunity to be focused on really growing staff of all diverse you know, backgrounds. And that's we've seen over the last few years, we've seen talent grow and go, which is okay. But we want to continue to have that develop so it's a part of our DNA, right? Because as you're working, as you bring your son, or if I bring my son to a program, he walks in, he sees his teacher who sounds and looks like him. There's this level of, oh, my goodness, I can do that one day. Absolutely. Or who's that person? Who is that young lady in that power suit over there? Oh, I, and I'm a young lady, and I can be, oh, she's a director of what, the whole program? Like, thinking through that lens. And so that's a part of what the committee work is all about. And the need to have outside professionals and volunteers from the community, the community leaders, you know, uh, formal and informal, that's important, too. People need to understand that because the informal community leaders, they can move mountains, absolutely can move mountains. So having them invited to the table to help us be better, that's really a focus of how we move the DNI work together. And I think if, as, a, as a community, if we're willing to do that, and sometimes remember the round table uh, analogy, there's no head to the round table. We need to, at, some time, at times, someone has to lead the conversation and lead the initiative, but um, less ego, more focus on the movement is really critical, and that's what we're trying to do at the Y. Love it. So, you know, one of the things I think um, when we're trying to move in those directions, I think that there's always, especially on the for-profit side, you know, companies that they see that bottom line and that's one of the, the biggest numbers that's, you know, right in front of them all the time. And so they make a lot of decisions to try to maximize that in the short term and sometimes are, are, are you know, overlooking other other aspects of, of longer term success. Because I, I truly believe in conscious yeah. capitalism really shows that, you know, when you focus on purpose and culture and community, 
in the long run, yes. that leads to, to more, you know, whatever your metric is, more more profit uh, profitability if you're in the in the for profit sector. But but for for you all, uh, you know, at the YMCA, what are some of those around diversity and inclusion or around some of those kind of more culture focused metrics? What are some of the most important things kind of on your dashboard that you're trying to, you know, maintain in terms of in terms of those those ways that you measure what matters? Right. So it's it, uh Great question, Andrew. One of the things we have as a like a, our business case, you know, we talk about diversity and inclusion in the business case because sometimes it's the the cause. You know, you, you come at diversity and inclusion from a cause standpoint where it's the right thing to do, but also you can come from come from the perspective of it, the business case. It makes sense to your bottom line. Like so, from a for profit or a nonprofit, because you you want to run and you know we it, we we run our organization very very well, so we can have those dollars operationally infused into our urban core. So looking at the business case, we realize that our communities are growing, right? The data talks about, census data talks about uh, minority, majority cities and regions. We talk about the growth in various populations, um, different lenses of, of diversity from ethnicity to race to uh, sexual orientation, I t you name it, they're, gro they're growing. And from a business standpoint, you want to serve. So if it's just a bottom line business case, just the bottom line black or red, you have growing populations of consumers that are in your communities that you could serve if you were intentional about your DNI work to help connect and empathize and understand, right? So if you think about that, then it changes your, your, your paradigm completely. Well, this makes sense. We have a growing population of newcomers in our community. We have a strong Latino, Latina, or Latinx community that's growing, right? We have an entrenched, strong, and proud African-American community how we're we serving them. What's our, what's our data tell us? From a for-profit standpoint, I'll say, for example, if you're working an organization, what's our data tell us right now, our consumer base? How, 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 how deeply have we penetrated into uh, population A, B, or C? Well, there's an opportunity for us. How do we do that intelligently and intentionally and with care? Because if you do those things in that manner, all of a sudden you, you, open, up to, you open up your business to new possibilities. So it makes business sense. And then you think about the impact on the community. Well, wow, so now I have an opportunity. If I want to permeate this community, how do, I sh how do I hire? How do I attract talent? What does that look like? So now you look at your policies and procedures, right? Are you, are you continuing to uh, steer or veer towards people that reflect you, sim they're very similar to who you are, and therefore they don't have the cultural competence to connect with this potential community that could be a new revenue stream for you? Just from a business case standpoint, okay, so we don't. So how do we build new policy and procedures to attract talent, and how do we create a culture? So you keep parent, you keep pulling back the, the layers on the onion and go, wait, is our culture inclusive? Do we are we welcoming? Can if the bottom line is we want to you know we want to grow by this percentage and we see an opportunity in these communities, is our culture ready for that? So let's do a needs assessment or a self assessment. Let's start to peel back that onion and go, okay, how do we change it here? So now we're changing the culture, and now we're attracting talent, and now we're having the, the, the talent come in and helping, helping us evolve the culture. And now the talent that's come and joined our team is helping us open up doors. It's very intentional steps that you're taking to connect. And from a Y standpoint, we see it, and we realize that we are in a region that, um, and we've been successful. We, we have nearly 100,000 members in total, and you know, Rochester, the region itself, is not a very large market when you talk about that, right? But we realize because we have this lens of for all, we have to grow and we have to be able to serve. If we're not doing those things, at the, it's, our, it's our innately a part of our fiber for us as an organization 
then we're not living up to our mission. And D&I is the key to that for us. And so in our philanthropy, how we raise money and how we raise friends and resources to support those who need to give them a hand up so they continue to grow, it has to be through that D&I lens to be culturally sensitive to who we're trying to serve, as well as to the individuals that we're asking to help us and giving them the business case as well as the uh, social case and how it ties together. I think that's a really important piece. And I would strongly urge businesses, for-profit world, to think about it from that perspective. Look at your data. Who are you not serving? What could that mean to your bottom line? I, I read a, a stat this morning, and I'm getting the website wrong. It could be, uh, I want to say it's PwC, but it, it could be someone else. And I'll get it right for you, Andrew. But it talked about you're missing 15% of, uh, they talked about 15% of for-profits are missing 15% of revenue with, with um, the fact that they're not serving very diverse communities. There's 15%. 50% of the, they have a 15% jump in their bottom line f- year over year if they were thinking differently in how they serve those communities, starting with their culture, their, re- their attraction strategies, and then reaching out to the community. So somehow, um, I, I don't know how, but uh, we're almost out of time. But the good Ooh. news is, even though we've just scratched the surface, the good news is that we have a Conscious Capitalism meeting coming yes. up where we're going to be able to learn a little bit more. First of all, see a beautiful new facility. Yes. Um, so tell us a little bit about what people will see, but also maybe some of the things that they'll learn in terms of maybe even more of these and being being able to ask uh, questions of how to build that more inclusive culture in their in their own organizations. Yeah, so you got it, so we're in for a treat. Shot, the Shotland YMCA is beautiful. 100, 140,000 square feet of space. And it was our it was our kind of first full step into that universal design concept of trying to build a facility that however you enter, you can access it. Right? And so if you're coming if you're coming with assistance, if you're in a, if you're in a wheelchair, if you make, if you're coming with a person, how do you both get in? How do you both access all the resources from the spin studio to the to the pool? Uh, those things were thought of because, as an organization, we've been trying to grow and think through the lenses of diversity and how to support. You're going to see some of the most breathtaking spaces uh, it, this side of the Mississippi. I'll be silly for a little bit, <laughs> um, and I'm really excited about that. And what you're going to get a chance is to meet some great staff. So uh, many of the, st- the team there have been a part of the DNI work for a long time, so to give that extra lens. And you're going to get a chance to meet Jeff Kogan, who's the executive director. And I've known Jeff uh, almost my entire YMCA career, and I'm very proud to watch his, his rise through the, the movement and his commitment to those with diverse abilities, those who need access, and also to uh, other communities. He wants to use and leverage Shotland in Pittsburgh in that region as a place to, to hold conversations, to bring people together. What you're going to see also that night is just so many people coming in from as young as six weeks as and to our, el- to our elders, our wise ones, you know, in their 80s and 90s using that facility. And it's just a, an amazing resource. What we're excited about as well is we didn't see it being this big this fast. But it's starting to permeate into Russia and Yetta, into the city of Rochester, into Honeywell Falls, you know, Honeywell Falls up the way. It's like it's reaching further and to the point where we're now we have some issues with parking. So, I, you <laughs> know, opportunities, I'll say, <laughs> with parking. Good problem to have. Right? Uh, and so that's you're – you're in for a real treat. I invite everyone out from the group, you know, please, if you haven't signed up already, come out. Uh, Jeff and his team are going to give a great tour and you're going to get a chance to ask a lot of questions. We've grown in our financial assistance there. We didn't anticipate the need, and we're so excited about this opportunity because for us, uh, for me specifically in philanthropy, this is an opportunity to, to talk about that the need is growing and where can we be as an organization but also as a community to be a part of the solution. Let's provide the resources to help people be well. 
I love it. So, yes, you can go to ConsciousCapitalismROC.org. Uh, it'll be February 18th. will be the, uh, the event at 530 to 7. Uh, you'll get to see a little bit more, certainly be able to ask questions around the, the diversity, inclusion, equity work. Uh, and, and if you're listening to this after that, uh, just one more reason to get subscribed so that you don't miss out on future opportunities so that you, you hear these episodes as soon as they're released. But, James, I just want to ask you one final question. It's really around just having so much respect for, uh, you know, again, we started hearing your story growing up and, and the leader and the, and the leadership roles that you've taken on. What have, what have you evolved as a leader? How have you evolved and what might you say to someone who's either just at the beginning of their leadership journey in general or maybe just at the beginning of kind of that more, more awareness and intentionality around diversity and inclusion as a leader? Any kind of advice that you'd give to folks uh, that, are, that are listening in and on that journey? Yeah, so, you know, young leaders are new into leadership or they're starting their journey to become leaders. Remember that you have power that you have the ability to make change and to influence others' hearts and minds. And that's something I learned during, during my journey. And just a quick aside, I remember when I first started, when it went from an intern to a staffer, one of my very first supervisors at Lewis Street ha sat me down in her office and looked at me and she said, you're a dynamic leader of young people. I need you to do that for other people, your colleagues, your cohorts, they need to, I need you to lead. Don't be afraid to understand your power and your influence. And when you're doing that, make sure you align yourself with people that can help you grow. Sponsors, mentors, and coaches are critical. I have so many in my life of all ages and backgrounds that have helped me grow so I can serve. And help having those type of people, my board of le uh, leadership, I call it, my board of leadership, help me grow as a leader, allows me to serve others. And so now I have the privilege and the pleasure and the honor of being on people's boards now as a mentor and coach and sponsor so I can pay it forward from that perspective. Don't be afraid of that opportunity. Seek people out that are different from you, that are different in multiple ways, perspective, ideas, concepts, because they can enrich you. It changes the way you see the world. I know I, ha I had that in my life, and it really reframed how I approach things. And I evolved as a leader because of that. And it allowed me to be the man I am today, the husband and the father. Wow. Well, thank you so much for your time and, and maybe more importantly for all the work that you're doing each and every day. We're really lucky to have you here in Rochester thank and you. lucky that you decided to, uh, to pay it forward. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's been a pleasure, sir. Thanks, as always, to all the evolutionaries out there listening across more than 30 countries around the world. We hope that you found it to be both inspirational and full of actionable insights to guide you on your own evolutionary journey. We've grown this movement entirely by word of mouth, so if you know someone who might find value in listening to this episode, we'd be deeply grateful if you'd share it with them. And of course, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite listening app so that you're notified as soon as we release new episodes each week. Together, we can evolve business toward a more conscious capitalism.